1: Back to the midnight myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back here with Laurel and baby Arthur, who is napping in Laurel's arms. So he may stir a little bit, and if so, you might get some baby sounds on the podcast. Wanted to just kind of start off and clear the air and apologize for blowing our deadline. We were going to make this episode and publish it on Sunday. However, that plan did not happen. It did not go according to plan.
0: As we have learned, when you have an infant, all of your plans are tentative. No matter how much you want to do them, you just cannot absolutely rely on your plans.
1: And the reason for it, I'll just let everybody know, we had the opportunity the Saturday before to introduce Arthur to my 97 year old grandmother. And we took that since we are all vaccinated and by the way, get your vaccine for the COVID if you can, since we're vaccinated and it was a crazy tumultuous year and Arthur is now a few months old. We really wanted to get some pictures of them together and we did that and it was a ton of fun. And Arthur was the star of the show, as you can imagine but he was so revved up and excited. We really couldn't get him down for good naps on Sunday, and we just weren't able to get it together to do an episode. Also, in full disclosure, since we've had Arthur, we've been doing these in the morning when he takes his morning nap. It is now afternoon. Laurel and I have both worked. We may not be as sharp as we normally are. We're both morning people, not evening people. So we're going to do our best to get through this. Hopefully, Arthur will take a nice, deep, long nap and will cooperate, and we're going to get through as much as we can get through in the time that we have.
0: Yeah, and thank you all for coming along this very new journey with us. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while or you've just started listening, you know this is not our, our regular, uh, y- you know, the way that we work, but we are adjusting to a very new normal, and we are so happy that you have stayed with us as we have kind of figured it out. So thank you.
1: I think two episodes a month with a wheel of ca in there when we can is about all we can do right now. Yeah. We can't really do the extra boomerang We can't really do too much more. So this is it until, I guess, it's not it.
0: Until Arthur is 18. Until
1: he's 18. Then we'll go back to every week with a wheel of ca once a month. There you go. All right, so what are we talking about today? Very excited for this topic we are going to be doing another Disney, I don't want to go so far as to say classic, but underrated gem, I would say. We are going to be talking the Notre Dame. Very excited. A um, lot of things that we can get into, a lot of things to talk about in this movie. Obviously, if you haven't seen the Notre Dame, we're going to spoil it, but it The came uh, out.
0: Hunchback of Notre Dame. The
1: Hunchback of Notre Dame, pardon me. The Notre Dame is the church. The Hunchback of Notre Dame is the Disney movie based off of the novel by Victor, help me out, Laurel, Hugo. Victor Hugo. I was drawing a blank there. A lot of things for us to dive into. Before we get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing.
0: Yeah, the thing is that we would love to hear from you. We are all over social media, especially on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're also on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. So check us out there and say Hello. You can also check out our website, MidnightMyth.com, for blogs and more content, a link to our merch store, and a link to our Patreon page if you wanted to support us monetarily. Uh, The very best thing that you can do for the podcast is absolutely free. It's just to leave us a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Uh, And we just got a brand new review by a new listener that we are so, so grateful for. I would love to pull out her name for you. So thank you to AMS513 for the wonderful review. Uh, Your words mean a lot to us. And anyone who does leave us a rating or a review, please know that it helps us find uh, new audiences and it also just makes us feel really good about the work that we're doing. So thank you for that.
1: All right, thank you for that review. Shall we do the briefest of brief recaps? Take it away, Derek. The movie starts in late Middle Age France in Paris, when a Parisian minister by the name of Frollo is hunting down refugee gypsies in which he ends up trampling over a gypsy woman on the steps of the Notre Dame. He then sees that she has a deformed child that he's going to throw in the well. After this happens, the priest of the Notre Dame sees him about to dump the child and commands him that his mortal soul is in danger and that he must "'raise this child as his own, least he go to hell.'" Frollo then decides that he will take this child and raise him as his own. However, he wants him to stay in the bell tower of the Notre Dame. Flash forward a few years, and we have Quasimodo, a fully grown man, living in the bell tower, ringing the bells of the Notre Dame, talking to three gargoyles that are his slash imaginary friends, or maybe he's just a full-on schizophrenic, or maybe they're magical, more on that later. And furlough is coming to visit him on the feast the Festival of Fools. This is a day where the Parisianers don the King of Fools and Quasimodo, hungry to get out of the bell tower, ends up escaping and is donned the actual king of fools. However, when they recognize that his face is actually his face and not a mask. They actually start to throw things at him. They wrap him up with rope and it ends up getting really, really dicey until a young gypsy woman by Esmeralda stops them from doing this. Frollo, seeing a gypsy woman at the festival, decides he's going to arrest her because he just wants to arrest and kill all the gypsies and she claims sanctuary in the Notre Dame. Quasimodo helps her escape and Frollo decides that he is going to Burn the city to the ground in his attempts to find Esmeralda. In doing so, he orders Phoebus to kill a small family, which he refuses. And Phoebus now becomes an enemy of the law. And Phoebus also escapes to the Notre Dame. There, Quasimodo hides Phoebus under Esmeralda's direction because Esmeralda and Phoebus are falling in love, just as poor Quasimodo is falling in love with Esmeralda. Frollo comes and he hatches a scheme. He assumes that the Hunchback of Notre Dame, Quasimodo, knows where Esmeralda is, and he kind of baits her into going out to find her, which he does. Quasimodo leads Frollo directly to the gypsies' underground lair in which they are all arrested, and Esmeralda is being burned alive as a witch. Quasimodo decides that he's going to defy his master, and helps Elsmerelda escape the funeral pyre just minutes before she is actually suffocated from the smoke and burned alive, claiming sanctuary for her in the Notre Dame again. Now, this is where things get really, really dicey. Frollo wants to attack the Notre Dame, and the priest there says, you can't, because this is holy ground, you are unable to attack it. Anyone who has sanctuary here is protected by the power of the church and he's like no way and breaks into the Notre Dame to try to kill Esmeralda ultimately he is unsuccessful while Esmeralda and Quasimodo are hanging from the Notre Dame the Notre Dame comes to life and spews out fire and lava onto Frollo as he falls to his fiery deathly grave Quasimodo ends up uniting Phoebus and Esmeralda together, and they escape back into Paris, presumably Paris being a little more tolerant of the gypsies than they were before when all this started.
0: Quasimodo being lifted upon the shoulders of the citizens and hailed as a hero in the streets for the kindness that he has shown. Ooh, what a movie.
1: Well, first question I have for you. No surprise here. We've been asking this question a lot. Uh, Full disclosure. This was the first time I'd seen this movie in preparation for this podcast. So Laurel, you had suggested doing this. This was on your docket. You really wanted to cover it. We've rewatched it. We've been discussing it for about two weeks now. Tell me, does it hold up?
0: Yeah, I think it does. This movie came out in 1996. So I was six years old. I remember seeing this in the theater. And I remember like McDonald's Happy Meal toys of Quasimodo and Esmeralda. Uh, And I was pretty obsessed with it when it first came out. And then it's one that, you know, while it has a huge cult following, I think has fallen by the wayside of, you know, greater known films like the Lion King and The Little Mermaid and Aladdin and other kind of golden age Disney renaissance movies. But this one really packs a punch. And when you go back and watch it, it is pretty remarkable. The animation is stunningly gorgeous. When you look at how intricate the representation of the cathedral of Notre Dame really is the character design uh, and how the streets of Paris in the medieval world are brought to life. It's pretty amazing. There is some kind of early CGI work that you can see on the crowds in the background that doesn't look fantastic, but compared to the way that the light plays across the clouds and the Notre Dame, like it is really a stunningly gorgeous film. I think it has one of the best uh, musical scores in the Disney canon. It's really, really amazing. And you have, of course, the heavyweights of Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz writing that music. So you know it's going to be great, but it really is special. They use so many aspects of Catholic liturgy and uh, you know, religious music in crafting it. So it feels very uh, true to the time and true to the tone. Uh, it's also one of Disney's darkest entries. I think it only is rivaled by the Black Cauldron when I think about other Disney animated movies that are that dark. Uh, So it's really shocking to me that I was able to take this in when I was six years old. But, you know, it's not like me to underestimate young people. It has a freaking G rating. And this film is maybe the only one in the Disney of that deals heavily with God and religion and Things like heaven and hell and sacrifice—at
1: least explicitly—explicitly
0: explicitly so. Yeah, there's often, you know, a, a, an underlying religious bent to a lot of fairy tales and Disney movies. But this one is explicitly about Catholicism in many ways. It's also explicitly dealing with sex and sexual obsession. Which, yeah, you could argue that there is, you know, sexuality hidden beneath the layers of Beauty and the Beast and The Little Mermaid and so many of Disney's other entries but not in the way that Hunchback deals with it. Frollo is sexually obsessed with Esmeralda and that conflict of how he hates her race and loves her or wants and desires her is creating this incredible portrayal of a villain in Disney that we haven't seen before. Someone who is marked by jealousy, by this kind of feigned piety, by vice and sin and corruption, Uh, who also believes he's the good guy and that he's doing God's work. It's really remarkable how much is happening in this film and how adult the themes are. And this is an adaptation of a much darker novel by Victor Hugo. They really uh, remove a lot of the tragedy in the ending and yet still deliver us something very bittersweet, especially for Disney, which is, you know, very keen to sanitize its fairy tales and give us perfect happy endings with marriages where, you know, he gets the girl or the prince finds the princess and so on and so forth. This one doesn't give us that. And while it doesn't give us the horribly tragic ending of Victor Hugo's novel, it is, you know, stepping out of, you know, Disney's comfort zone in terms of the happy ending.
1: Yeah, um, interesting things you said there. I want to harken back to a few things. I do think this movie holds up. I have some I have some criticisms of it, which I will touch on, but I don't want to hearken on. But I would like to cycle back to Frollo and talk a little bit about that character here because I think you hit the nail on the head. He's a little bit of a different type of Disney villain. Disney villains usually have sinister motivations. They are typically mustache-twirling evil, in particular in older Disney. Even villains that have some pretty complex motivations, such as... You mentioned Lion King, like Scar, who feels you know, inferior next to his brother, wants to usurp the throne, well, has this complex plot to do so, has motivations and is a fleshed out villain, is not really fleshed out in the way that Frollo is. He is a uniquely fleshed out villain in the respect that he defines his religious authority in terms of his secular power. So he says, I have the power from God, and I will wield that not as a member of the clergy, not as a member of as a spiritual advisor, but as a member of a secular authority in the Parisian or or Paris's administration. That's unique, and that's also very historically reminiscent to some pretty terrible people in the Middle Ages. And two, that they couch his anti-gypsy bias to his, his sexuality. The fact that his repressed urges to dominate and possess Esmeralda sexually because he never sees her as a person. His love for her, quote unquote, love for her is all in fire and brimstone. She is this seductress to him. She becomes an archetype of his repressed sexual life.
0: Yeah, he calls her a siren.
1: That he focuses all of his energy onto that it doesn't matter if he burns a city full of good and pious Catholics just so that he stops this one seductress. She becomes an archetypal image that represents his unfulfilled sexuality. Yeah. And the fact that he is presumably celibate, We don't. he doesn't mention a wife at all, has no children of his own, so... I take it to uh, believe that he has taken some sort of an oath of celibacy and the fact that that is festering in him manifests in his hatred for Esmeralda and his desire to do harm, to stop her, not because she's wicked, but because he himself is having the wicked thoughts.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's uh, In Hellfire, he talks about how... how cruel God's plan is that he made the devil so much stronger than a man. He's like, you are the one who gave me these urges, God. And so because of that, I ask you to either destroy Esmeralda or make her mine and mine alone. It's a really horrible dichotomy that he would rather either have her as his own, as his possession, or have her dead and destroyed.
1: And that's because he, he's the one that's like, yo, dude, there's nothing wrong you can go out and meet a nice woman and have relations with her respectfully. And that's totally not wicked or sinful, but to him because he has never confronted or dealt with his sexuality, it becomes his obsession. And that makes him unique. What makes him also unique is how he's willing to kill gypsies with impunity from the beginning, but is talked into mercy and realizes that there's a part of him that's like, okay, I do have to do mercy, but there's a limit. I will raise him as my own, but I won't take him into my home. I so there's a limit to what his mercy can do, but he does recognize that killing a mother on the steps of a church is not a good thing, and that might actually has that probably has more odds of bringing you to hell than to heaven. And he tries to right that wrong. Is something that's unique with Disney villains who usually just do nothing but wrong. Consider we mentioned Scar. Consider Jafar, consider Maleficent. Ursula. Ursula. Consider all of these uh, uh, villains. Um, What's the one from 101 Dalmatians?
0: Cruella Deville. I'm
1: just listing all villains at this point. Gaston, yeah. They are all just bad for the sake of being bad at some point. This character is never bad for being the sake of bad, which makes him very interesting, which makes this movie so much more interesting, I would argue, which makes it hold up incredibly well. What I kind of didn't get behind and I really did struggle with was the Three Gargoyles piece. Watching this as an adult, not as a kid, in 2021, well away from 1996 when it came out, that part of the movie felt odd. And it felt odd to me because is Quasimodo actually seeing these gargoyles? Are these gargoyles magic and do they come to life? Is Quasimodo quasimodo imagining them is quasimodo a paranoid schizophrenic talking to gargoyles but it never seemed to make sense where the entire movie is grounded in a late middle-aged realism we're talking about the cusp of the middle age to the modern era in the way of its setting the way it's plot the way that all the, the characters move throughout space the way they deal with conflict and here are these three magical gargoyles who are suddenly alive Then there's suddenly stone is the building itself alive. Now at the end, when the building opens up and spews fire on him, that was pretty symbolic for me. That was pretty much symbolic of like, no, you're going to hell, dude. You got this whole thing wrong. The gargoyles felt like comic relief. And I don't know if entering magic potential schizophrenia as comic relief is something that I thought worked particularly successfully. It, it, It took me out of it. I could imagine if I were a kid, I would have really enjoyed that part, though.
0: So I can attest, as a kid, I loved it. You know, you've got Jason Alexander as a pig-faced gargoyle saying, pour the wine and cut the cheese. Like, it's fun. And I... I I agree with you as an adult. I do think that tonally it is such whiplash in this film because we get so much darkness and then this incredibly goofy lightness in the gargoyles. It feels very, very, uh, you know, disharmonious to me. But I also recognize how needed that is, especially when you're marketing this to young audiences, how this never would have passed the boardroom at Disney if it didn't have some element of lightness and joy lifting it up. Because the dark parts of this movie are devastating. When you see Quasimodo tied up and Esmeralda being the only one able to show him an ounce of kindness, it's heartbreaking. When you watch Quasimodo's heart break as Esmeralda and Phoebus are kissing, like you just want to hold him and cry with him. It's really hard, so you do need something to lighten the mood a little bit, especially if you're a young person watching this. But I do agree. I think that tonally it doesn't quite work, and I would be so interested. You know, someday I want to see a production of the the stage production that was created because I know that they preserved. The tragic ending of Victor Hugo, and I don't know if they included the gargoyles or at least if they included them in a similar way. So I'd be really interested to see them really take this to the tragic end that it, uh, it came from and that it maybe deserves to give it all the darkness that it deserves.
1: I mean, you're saying that as if everybody knows the tragic end. If someone is listening who has only seen the Disney adaptation, Could you explain what you mean by that?
0: Sure, so if you plan on reading the Victor Hugo novel, maybe skip ahead 30 seconds or so, but instead of Quasimodo being hailed in the streets as a hero at the end of the story, uh, Esmeralda is hanged uh, and she dies, and then she is thrown into a mass grave for other people uh, of her race, and Quasimodo, heartbroken over her death, uh, goes to this mass grave and searches for her amongst the bodies, finds her and curls up next to her and dies. And we learn this as it's being narrated by someone who has found these two embracing skeletons. And as they are trying to pry the skeletons apart, both of them crumble into dust. Uh, I've got goosebumps and I feel like crying. Definitely not something that needs to be in a Disney movie, but a really beautiful and touching ending.
1: Imagine if they had done that ending. Oh
0: my God, imagine that.
1: I mean, it would be the most famous Disney movie of all time because of that ending.
0: Right, yeah, it would be like if they had taken The Little Mermaid and had her, you know, stepping on knives and throwing herself into the ocean instead of marrying the prince.
1: I mean, this is the company that killed Bambi's mom. so This I- is
0: true. They're not afraid to, to to traumatize us.
1: All right, so let's turn our eye to analysis and let's really start picking this thing apart. I know we've got a lot to talk about, one thing I wanted to start with, if you'll permit me, Laurel, I want to tell a little personal story. Laurel and I have been to Paris. And if you're in Paris, one of the stops you have to see is the Notre Dame. And we were in the Notre Dame. And at first we saw it and we were really tired that day. I think it was the first day we were there. I don't really remember. And there's a long line to get in and we're outside and it's gorgeous. And Laurel's like, do you want to get in the line to get in? And I was like, I was feeling impatient and I was just like, eh, we don't have to go into the Notre Dame. And Laurel's like, no, I think we should wait in line and go into the Notre Dame. And we waited in line and we walked into the Notre Dame and I will never forget that feeling, that sense, that smell of the place, the look, this gigantic stained glass window, showering colorful light, the dark alcoves with statues of figures like Joan of Arc and other important figures to both French and Catholic history. And I was taken away. I almost went on my knees and wept and begged to be baptized. That's how beautiful I felt the inside of the Notre Dame was. As gorgeous as it was on the outside, the inside inspired a feeling of just true awe and wonder. And it really made me Cherish that moment. And I think it's worth talking about the Notre Dame building itself. That's the centerpiece. It's almost the main character in this. The movie starts with them singing about the bells of the Notre Dame. It's the building comes to life and advises our hero Quasimodo on what to do. And in the end, it is the last thing that our villain sees before he falls to his death as it turns on him. As well as This idea that there is a boundary between the secular world and the religious world that if once crossed, the secular authority seems to diminish so. So I think it's worth talking about the Notre Dame and in particular, why Victor Hugo tried and wanted to feature it in this book and the legacy of that.
0: I think that is a fantastic idea. Like you said, the Notre Dame is a character in this. It is this monument. It is something that has been around for centuries already at this point, and it is a witness to the events that happen over the centuries, and it continues to be a witness to what happens in Paris. Uh, Victor Hugo wrote the novel, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, in 1831, and it's really hard to overstate the significance of the novel. It is the first novel ever to include beggars and impoverished characters as protagonists. So I just want to make sure we like spend some time thinking about that. In 1831, we had our first novel ever where beggars were protagonists. And it's super significant to the Gothic architectural revival. So Hugo wrote this novel with the intention of creating interest in the conservation of the Cathedral of Notre-Dame de Paris, which had begun to fall into disrepair at this point. There was a lack of interest in keeping it up. And if it weren't for Hugo's novel... Notre Dame likely wouldn't have the cultural significance that it has today. So while many of us may think of it as the greatest example of Gothic architecture, like you would think of it as one of the greatest Gothic churches ever, right? I would. So would I. However, it's not actually like the greatest example of Gothic cathedral architecture, even in France, let alone the rest of Europe. So it is absolutely the cultural icon that it is today because of Hugo's novel, because he used it in this beautiful and touching story and revived all of this interest in conserving Gothic architecture, which by that point had begun to seem like uh, kind of an outdated, archaic, antiquated form and needed a a renewal of interest.
1: Very, very interesting. So the fact that the The author of the book wrote it in part trying to have people appreciate the architecture of the Notre Dame and the book's success ended up getting people more into the architecture of the Notre Dame and helped catapult this very real place into the world cultural heritage site that it is today.
0: Absolutely. And then the 19th century is also a point of Gothic revival and neo-Gothic architecture. You can especially look in London and other places in the United Kingdom where it became the kind of state style of the uh, of the British Empire the neo gothic so that renewed interest can in many ways be traced back to the hunchback of notre dame hugo's novel
1: if anyone were to ever argue that our storytelling is irrelevant one you would probably not be listening to this podcast cuz this podcast is all about examining the importance of storytelling But two, you have such a piece of evidence here in what this novel meant and how this novel ended up changing the way people identified themselves through their architecture and the type of architecture that they considered important to their identity. I would imagine, and I have done no empirical research on this, that if you asked the average parishioner which building is the most important, I imagine the Notre Dame is going to be in their top three right there with the Eiffel Tower, maybe some other important uh, monuments there. But if you ask them, hey, what's the most important building here? Some would say it's the Notre Dame. Everybody would list it in their top three, I would imagine. And to think of this in the 19th century, not long ago, from a historical standpoint, the building was falling apart and people didn't appreciate it. All this to say is whatever your passion is, put it out there in the world. You have no idea what it can do. Yeah, yeah. That's an excellent point. Let's Can I, can I talk a little bit about what Garthi, Gothic architecture actually is?
0: Yeah, please. Why this it is one matters? Of my subject.
1: I'm going to caveat this with saying this is not an area of expertise for me. So if you're an architectural and an architectural history expert and I make a mistake, hit me up, let me know so I can correct it. But generally, here's the gist. Around the what's called the High Middle Ages. So the Middle Ages has three different phases. Early, which we now consider the, the darkest Dark Ages. High, where they were climbing out of the Dark Ages. And late, the transition into the Renaissance and then the modern period. So in the High Middle Ages, Europeans did this thing called crusading. They went into the Islamic East and they were trying to carve out pieces of the Islamic East for their own huge topic for another podcast. But crusading is instrumental in the development of Gothic architecture, because when the people in the high middle ages just coming out of a dark age, saw the architecture and saw what was happening in the near East. And they went back to their homes, like in Germany, France and England, they were really like, uh, we're not good at building things. They're good at building things. And one of the things that they noticed was really, really high ceilings. A um, lot of great buildings that they saw, buildings of like temples, things like that in the ancient Near East, uh, Middle East, we call it today, had these high ceilings. And they felt a sense of both uh, aesthetic and also religious awe within them. The bigger the building is as you go in, the more feeling that you have that you are connecting yourself to the sky, to the actual heavens. So they came back and they started to monumentalize Western Europe and Eastern Europe and the structure that it started in what is now called Normandy, a part of France. And um, it started around the 1100s after the first crusade. And it was first called Opus Francigenum, which is in Latin and I probably brutalized it but it translates to French work. So it's the French work of building these buildings with these incredibly high interior surfaces, and you have to support them by creating things called buttresses, which are essentially supports to just hold this very high structure up. And so it's like, hey, we went to the Middle East and crusaded. We recognize that they're better at building things than us. Let's take what we learned and what we observed there and let's adapt it into our own style because we want places of worship like how the Islamic people have places of worship. If you say your God is the superior God or the same God, but the better way to worship the same God as your enemy, yet your enemy's places of worship are more beautiful, are larger or more ornate. You're recognizing that, Oh, maybe we're not the better. So you have to right that wrong by going home and building these great Gothic cathedrals. The idea of the Gothic cathedral and the idea of a church itself is that the place where the priest um, delivers communion and they transmute the communion bread and the communion wine into the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, they have to channel the Holy Spirit to do that which is one of the three manifestations of God. So God has to enter that building for communion to happen. And if God's going to enter that building for that communion to actually happen, that building needs to be worthy of God. And there's a few ways that you can do that. One is through the, the process of making it sacred. The other is the process of monumentalizing it. Now, this would go on to be debated, agnosium. That's how, why there was a Protestant Reformation. Do you need this beautiful place? How do you know the priest can do this? But at the time, the belief was the churches were not worthy of God and they must be remade. And this is where the Gothic architecture comes into play. However, the term Gothic was coined by this Italian architect named Giorgio Vasari. And at the time, so there was a huge wave of doing this, but it didn't really stick. It didn't really stick all that much. People started to instantly go back to neoclassicism, which is to rep- replicate the Greco-, Greco and Roman style of building, which is very simple. It's very function forward, but can still be very beautiful. So there's a, there's a, a movement for these gigantic Gothic cathedrals instantly then replaced by neoclassicism. And in the Renaissance, this guy, Giorgio Vasari called this style gothic, and he meant it as an insult. The reason he meant it as an insult is there were several Germanic tribes way back in the dark ages who sacked Rome and they sacked Rome and burned it to the ground and destroyed the Western Roman empire and destroyed places of neoclassic architecture. And those tribes were the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths. So by saying that this style was Gothic, he was barbarianizing it to those who destroyed classicism. He's saying this type of structure has destroyed classicism. In essence, it is barbaric. It is simple. It is ugly. It is crude. and It is not good by its very definition. However, By the time we get to Victor Hugo, the term Gothic originally as an insult is now reappropriated as something that is beautiful and reminiscent of this small period of time. Now, it's worth noting that not everyone just abandoned Gothic style and just went with neoclassicism. Neoclassicism was the dominant style for most of the Middle Ages, but plenty of people liked Gothic and built Gothic, and there are Gothic palaces, There are Gothic cathedrals. However, it didn't really become something everybody liked until Neo-Gothicism, until the Neo-Gothics came around, which wouldn't exist without the hunchback of Notre Dame.
0: Amazing. I am really impressed with everything you brought in because Gothic architecture and just the Gothic in general in all of the different forms that it has taken from literature to history to architecture is one of my like pet, you know subjects something that I really love and I actually learned some stuff from me that I didn't know before but I want to just call out one of the things that you got across that is kind of the spot on this is why gothic architecture and gothic cathedrals exist is height right so we have the buttresses we have the vaulted ceilings so that we can get closer to god so that god can enter this building and where this becomes important in the story, in the Disney movie, in Victor Hugo's novel, is that this is Quasimodo's home, that this is a place that is meant to be a representation of heaven on earth, a place where God can live. It is so high, he lives in the bell tower, the highest part, the closest to heaven, the part that lives among the clouds as we see in the opening scenes. And yet he wants to be down on the streets. And Frollo would have us believe that Quasimodo lives in heaven and that the streets of Paris are hell, right? So you have to descend from the bell tower, the place where you belong, into the streets of hell where they will torture you. They will call you a monster and they will harm you. But to Quasimodo, the Notre Dame is a prison. So there's this interesting contrast being played with here where the Notre Dame is absolutely a place of sanctuary, a place of love, a place of light, a place of heaven on earth and guidance from God, but it is also a prison. It is a prison for Quasimodo, for Esmeralda and for Phoebus who want to be out on the streets. And so part of the message I think that's being conveyed by The Hunchback of Notre Dame is that being among the people whether they are, you know, Parisian by na- by birth, whether they are part of a nomadic tribe that has been historically uh, discriminated against, whoever they are, you can find a little bit of God and heaven in them, even if they are, in Esmeralda's words, outcasts. You don't have to retreat to the bell tower to reach a little slice of heaven, that is.
1: I love that. I think that's totally cool. A few other things I'd like to talk about, too, especially relating this book to uh, more ancient ideas and concepts, is how it relates to physical beauty and what it is to be a beautiful person and how that term has changed and what it actually means and how that relates in particular to our hero Quasimodo, if that's cool with you. Yeah, please. The typical notion, and this, as far as I'm aware, is first developed philosophically by the ancient Greeks. Um, You see this in Athens and you see this in ancient Sparta, is the idea that your outward appearance will reflect your inner virtue. If you look beautiful, it is because physically, exterior-wise, it's because some god or deity or spirit has blessed your appearance, which means you were by nature more good than bad. The ancient uh, Greeks were obsessed with this idea, so they took exercise very seriously, dieting very seriously, so that they could maintain a physique as close to the gods as they could because you couldn't be said to have inner virtue if your outward appearance was bad. Now, there were you know, counterpoints to this. The cynics, for example, and the Stoics never really agreed with this idea that the outward experience, uh, outward appearance is so true. But that's where the idea, at least in Western um, civilization, was first planted. And that carries on to the Middle Ages, in which the idea is, If God kind of messed you up while you were born, it's because you were probably bad to begin with. And the idea of exterior beauty um, equaling inner beauty continued and has continued on in many ways to this day. We still live in a culture in which we consider the best form of beauty on the body to be its exterior looks rather than what the person actually is on the inside. Quasimodo flips this narrative directly on its head intentionally in the 19th century by making a poor deaf hunchback with a deformed face the hero and the most good individual in this, Victor Hugo and then Disney by extension, are making a clear point by saying, no, your exterior appearance is not actually related to or indicative of your actual moral virtue. It is your choices, what you do, that actually determines if you're a good person or you're a bad person. Quasimodo chooses to defy his master when he knows that it means that Esmeralda might die. And he does so, why? Because he has a sense of inner virtue that is bigger and higher than Frollo's, who claims to be the person who is so virtuous he can adjudicate life and death by the sense of, what's godly and what's not godly. And this is even echoed when Frollo then decides he's going to attack the church. The very thing he's saying he is protecting, at least in rhetoric by killing the gypsies, by purging these sorcerers and witches and pagans, he's protecting this church. He's willing to attack the very thing when Quasimodo by defending Esmeralda is also defending the Notre Dame from its own attackers shows this idea that it is it is on its face value absurd that the way you look is linked to some sort of a divine touch and that way by looking at someone we can determine if they're noble if they're moral if they're immoral if they're demonic and there's a reason why monsters are ugly there's a reason why the knights and heroes that kill them are pretty it's the idea of taking this and embedding it into our stories How do we know who the villain is versus who the hero is? The villain is usually not as good looking as the hero, even in modern contemporary Hollywood. There's usually some uglification exterior wise of the villain while there's a beautification of the hero that lets us know who has moral virtue and who doesn't. This, this movie, the Hunchback of Notre Dame and the book it's based on are in direct conversation with these century millennia old ideas and turning them on their head and saying the old adage of please do not judge a book by its cover just because someone doesn't look pretty doesn't mean they can't be a beautiful human being
0: and what else is it in conversation with right how else is disney you know playing with conventions in order to get that message across quasimodo is a disney princess Compare him to Rapunzel, compare him to Sleeping Beauty. He's locked away in a tower. Jasmine. Jasmine by, uh, you know, someone who claims to have his best interests in mind, but is truly imprisoning him and keeping him from the outside world. Belle also wants to join the outside world. She's stifled by the provincial town in France that she lives in he's absolutely the same character just wearing a different face. He has these goofy sidekicks who advise him just like any animal sidekick that a princess would have. So it's totally in conversation with earlier Disney and giving us the same sort of conventions that a Disney princess would be brought up in, but doing so in a body that looks very different and in the opposite gender uh, and having us examine the virtue of the kind of Disney princess archetype through a different way.
1: I totally 100% agree with that. I think that's the ultimate lesson of the Hunchback of Notre Dame is don't judge this character Quasimodo by his looks and in the book, by the fact that he is deaf and unable to communicate um, verbally with everybody else. And I think that is a lesson that all of us need to take to heed when we are looking at people and judging them by appearance, understand you're dealing with thousand-year-old ideas that were bad then, and they're even worse now.
0: Yeah. Before we wrap up, I would love to also turn our eye to another one of the subjects that this movie deals with that no other Disney Uh, property really has the uh, courage to deal with, except for maybe Pocahontas, and that's racism. Uh, This is a Disney movie that deals very, very explicitly in cultural prejudice, and the cultural prejudice that it's in conversation with is usually known as anti-Zygonism or anti-Gypsyism. The movie uses the term gypsy just as the novel does, and many people today still use that term. Uh, I will be using the term Romani going forward because that is the preferred name for the ethnic group uh, that has dispersed across Europe and the rest of the world because the term gypsy is considered a derogatory term, especially based on these centuries of oppression of those people. So anti-Zygonism is a cultural prejudice against the Romani that originates with their arrival in Europe in the Middle Ages. And what I found interesting in my research is that many of the pejorative terms for the Romani actually stem from misunderstandings about where they came from. So the term gypsy, uh, now very much considered derogatory, as I said, but used all over the movie and still all over the world, comes from people in Greece who thought that they came from Egypt. Uh, And then the French would have called them Les Bohemiens, or Bohemians, mistakenly believing that they came from Bohemia in the modern-day Czech Republic, which is not where they came from. Uh, Most of the genetic and linguistic evidence suggests that the Romani came from India, but there is still kind of a jury out on a lot of that, because not much of the cultural history has been preserved in the way that other ethnic groups have preserved theirs. Now, the perception of the Romani as vagabonds, as wanderers, or free spirits would lead to the modern interpretation of the Bohemian in the context of, like, the starving artist. If you've seen Moulin Rouge or anything in that vein, or Rent, uh, you know, the alternative lifestyle. This term was also conflated because those penniless artists uh, were literally renting living space in the cheaper neighborhoods inhabited by Romani people in France, like Montmartre. So they became conflated with the term Les Bohemien. Now, throughout the Middle Ages, Romani were perceived as witches, as thieves, as kidnapping nomads, as we see in the Hunchback of Notre Dame. There was also an extensive slave trade of Romani in Central Europe that lasted centuries. And this prejudice has lasted well into the modern world. One example is the state-sanctioned sterilization of Romani women that was practiced in Czechoslovakia as a means of culling their population as late as the 1990s and 2000s. This is a very recent, very, very horrible practice. And of course, they were a target of the Nazi regime, with up to 500,000 Romani killed by German death squads during the Holocaust. These are just a couple of examples of the human rights abuses and segregation that continue to this day across the world where Romani settlements exist. So I wanted to call some attention to that. As we see in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, there is clear redemption for Esmeralda and her people, but the rest of the world has not caught up even with this 1996 Disney movie that is still outdated in the terms that it uses. There is still so much prejudice and so much hatred towards the Romani people in Europe, in uh, America, across the world. So April 8th was International Romani Day when we celebrate Romani culture and we bring attention to the continued issues faced by the Romani people. So at the end of this episode, I would like to ask that you consider a donation to the Roma Education Fund to support their work toward improving education outcomes and providing equitable access to quality education for Roma children and youth across Europe. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, as we know, there is still segregation in schools in some European countries between Roma children and non-Roma children. And that's gotta stop. And we have to give everyone the same shot uh, and improve those outcomes. So definitely check out the show notes and consider you know, looking at people who are different from you as your brothers and sisters and friends.
1: And it's really hard because our natural inclination is to be in group and to look at those and the out group as out group and as other and as less worthy, less deserving, and as someone that is fundamentally taking from you. You know, you think of middle middle medieval Europe and its history. They it established this idea that the Christian nations that became the modern Europe were a thing called the Corpus Christi, meaning that it is the literal flesh and blood of of jesus christ on the earth and if you have people that are whether true or perceived to be not part of the corpus christi you end up thinking of it as a disease in your society which must be at the least bad contained at the worst completely purged and you see this in the way the Romani people are treated throughout history and the, how that has worked and made its way into our current world right now. And it's also one of the basis of European anti-Semitism and the idea that the Jewish people were bad and were able to, needed to be exercised from society. You know, we mentioned the crusade, just one quick historical antidote during the first crusade, the Crusaders were marching through Germany on their way to um, Byzantium to help Constantinople. And then they ended up taking Jerusalem. And while they were there, they started assaulting German Jewish populations. And they started forcing them to baptize, which was next to like waterboarding them by forcing them to consume massive amounts of holy water. Or if they refused, they were being slaughtered. The women were being raped. The children were being killed. And there were a whole bunch of bishops and clergymen that gave them sanctuary, just as we see in this, trying to shield some from the violence. And this is not to say that the medieval Catholic Church gets off easy on on the Jews in history. They don't. In this one instance, a few individuals stemmed some slaughter. But it goes to show you this idea that there is another and they fundamentally are a disease or they are a decay or they are just takers and never give anything back is at the heart of Frollo's hatred towards the gypsies, which mimics the real prejudice we've seen in our world. And when you deconstruct those, they never hold up under scrutiny. They're always a bad idea. We are stronger together than we will ever be if we are divided. And I just really appreciated what you just said there.
0: Awesome. Any last thoughts on Hunchback of Notre Dame?
1: Until next time, be kind.
0: Sanctuary.